One of the wines I'll never forget, one of the great wines of my life. About 15 years ago, a number of us bought a double magnum of 1865 Chateau Lafitte. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and that's Bruce Tyrrell. He's a fourth-generation owner of Tyrrell's Wines in the Hunter Valley. Now, let's get back to that 150-year-old bottle of wine. That's the greatest Bordeaux made in the 1800s. It had been stored under the Earl of Northumberland's castle in England for over 100 years, and it had never been moved. Unreal, right? It'd be like drinking a bit of history. So what exactly does it taste like? All great wines, the flavour starts as you put it in your mouth and there's an unbroken flow of flavour right through and the greatest ones you have are down under your collar and that wine did that. Bruce wanted to share this incredible experience with others in the industry and had somebody help him type up some notes. She said, you've given me description for five wines. That's how much it changed in an hour and a half in the class. Out of curiosity, how much would a bottle of that be? It cost us, and this is again about 14 years ago, it cost £10,000. There were there were about 15 of us. That is almost 20,000 Australian dollars. But it was just sensational. Unbelievable. One of the greatest, if not the greatest wine I've ever had. If you're like me, and I'm not saying you are, but you might never get to experience or taste something on that kind of level. I have to say, my experience is kind of a bit more like... good old cold chisel, one of Australia's many awesome inventions. Along with cask wine, also known as goon, and screw top caps for wine bottles. But wine grapes, they're not native to Australia. So where did they come from and how did the industry get started here? Well, the Royal Botanic Garden City and Tyrrell's wines actually go way back as they both have a part to play in that fascinating story. That's why you're going to hear more from Bruce and a couple of others from Tyrrell's later as we explore the art, history and science of winemaking. Hashtag, this is not an ad. So before we dive into Australia's story, let's go even further back in time and look at the origin of the world's wine. The grapes that we use for producing wine generally come from the area around Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, southern Turkey and Iran. That's David Lachlan. He's a supervisor in the horticulture team at the Raw Botanic Garden, Sydney. Then cultivation really began probably about eight to eight and a half thousand years ago, although there's talk about archaeological finds in China up to nine thousand years ago. So people have been making wine and cultivating grapes for an awful long time. It moved into sort of the Nile Delta and the, the Egyptians were cultivating wine and making wine probably around about 6,000 years ago. The ancient Greeks and Phoenicians then adopted wine as well and they helped to move it around Europe. And then with the Roman Empire, it spread a little bit further through Europe and to the Rhine Valley in Germany and places like that. And that's, I guess, what we know as old world wines today. After the fall of the Roman Empire, it was really the monasteries which carried on the tradition of winemaking. And then after that, probably from about the 14th century on, it became much more commercialised and winemaking really took off in Europe. Australia's got a booming wine industry now and is the sixth largest wine producer in the world. 
So how did it all start down under? So the Botanic Gardens has had a huge part to play in the birth of the Australian wine industry. There were vines on the first fleet and they were planted around Farm Cove, which basically is on the the site of the Botanic Gardens. And as the, the colony grew, they were trying to find what economical agricultural crops they could use and and wine was definitely a big part of that. So they would have thought, okay, all the essentials, like what can we fit on this ship? Yeah. And they would have had other crops and other yeah. food sources and wow, and they thought we need our wine. Yeah, there would have been a lot of experiment and the person who's probably the most interesting person with in our part of the story is James Busby. He was born in 1801. He actually studied viticulture in France, so he was he was a vintner. He knew he knew about wine. His family emigrated to New South Wales in 1824. The family had a 200-acre farm in the Hunter Valley, which they grew wine. He was also a wine teacher, but he was a remarkable man, James Busby. James Busby is actually known as the father of the Australian wine industry. And James Busby went off to uh, Europe in the early 1830s and did a bit of the grand tour of Europe, but collected uh, vines from France and Spain, brought them back to Australia, to Sydney, and they were planted, propagated, planted and grown here on this site. So there was about, I think it was about 324 different varieties that were successfully propagated, planted out on the site that's now the, the palm grove. And then they were distributed to the regions, New South Wales, particularly the Hunter Valley. And that was sort of the genesis of the Australian wine industry really starting to get going. The city, Sydney area, isn't the best climate to grow wine. So they were all eventually removed from the area, which is now the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. But in 2013, two very special vines were brought back to the garden. They're from the Terrell's Pecolvin Vineyard, which is one of the oldest in the Hunter Valley. And they're part of that Busby's collection, so helped to start uh, wineries such as Terrell's. That's amazing. It's, all, it's done full circle. It has, yeah. Yeah, so they've come back home again. <laughs> That's so cool. Those vines come from a, a, a vineyard called the Old Patch, funnily enough, uh, which is the oldest vineyard in New South Wales. It was planted in 1867. We're back in the Hunter with Bruce Tyrrell. And so when we became involved with the Royal Botanic Gardens, I thought, you know, this is the oldest vineyard in New South Wales. I need to return some of that material to the Botanic Gardens where the first, uh, first vines were planted. I'm sitting with Bruce inside a really rustic and special little house. This is my great-grandfather's house. Really? His second house. Because his first one was at the front. A little hut out the front, yeah. So it's, it's Edward, right? Edward, Edward Tyrrell. Yeah. Edward yeah. is my great-grandfather, his elder brother, Lovick. He's got a detailed record of his family history some of us can only dream of. 1855, uh, my great-grandfather and his elder brother arrived here ostensibly into the care of their uncle uh, who'd got here some eight or nine years before uh, and was the first Anglican Bishop of Newcastle. Um, my grandfather was still a teenager, wandered around trying to find a place for himself, I suppose, a place in life and then 1858 he comes here 
and takes up what's called a concessional allotment. The maximum you could get was 320 acres, which he took, and we're in the middle of that block right now. So with 320 acres, why did Bruce's family decide to start a vineyard? The original vines planted in the Hunter Valley were planted in 1828. That's 30 years before. That was what people were doing. And normally if you come in, you, you look around and see who's successful. Best way to be successful is do what the successful people are doing to start with. Built the winery uh, and it was ready for the first vintage in 1864. Do you feel like you had any choice in what you were going to do with your life or it was, I, I'm, it's in my blood? I suppose it was in the blood, you know, I started here. I opened cellar door on my own on a Sunday when I was nine years old because my father was too sick with the flu to do it and somebody had to if we were going to eat that week. How much has changed, you know, from when your great, wait, is it great, great grandfather, great, Edward? Great grandfather. How much has changed in that time? Oh, I've changed an enormous amount. Um, the major change was here was, was electricity. I remember that, 1958, we got electricity and the smell of kerosene disappeared from the house. We became a much more sophisticated nation. We became a much more multicultural nation. And so, you know, it brought that European habit of drinking wine and changed their whole industry from being to one of one that was sort of seen as part of what was socially correct. Do you see winemaking and what, what you do here as more of an art or a science? It's both. And I think, that, you know, we've got the most sophisticated laboratory in the district here and we can fingerprint a wine basically if we want to. Um, we've got strict regimes for things like uh, SO2 levels in the wine, um, for our pHs and acids. We're on top of the alcohols all the time because, again, we don't want them too high. So that's all the sort of stuff that if you don't get right, you're not going to make great wine. But the decisions as to what wine goes where, when we pick, uh, are largely palatable. They're taste decisions. The science tells you if you're within the, in the ballpark. Uh, my son Chris always says that we have half an eye behind us, which is so you don't forget the things you did in the past that worked. And secondly, and more importantly, you don't do dumb things twice. Uh, but the other one and a half eyes is always in front, always trying, doing new things, always fiddling. There's the Ed Edward Terrell saying of nothing is great unless it is good. Yeah. That's the family motto, Neil Magnum, Nisi Bonham, nothing great unless good. And that is, I suppose, that, that you can't come out and make one great wine and say you're a bloody genius. That it's about long term. It's about doing it consistently and doing it well. So in order to see how you make a great wine consistently, first got to step outside of the house and get out into the vineyard. What we make out here in the paddock uh, is 80% of the winemaking. That's Andrew Pengilly, the manager of Tyrrell's Vineyard. We've got such an awesome setting here uh, with the background of the broken back range and it's just so unique and so pretty. We keep getting 
told that it's very Bordeaux style, very Bordeaux looking. Like we've got uh, old vineyards planted in 1867 that are still just producing the, the finest of wines. And even right through, and we've got the, the youngest block, which is up right beside Chris's house, um, which we called our mother's block, and it was planted in 2011. And Sorry, I keep getting distracted. Can you maybe <laughs> let people know uh, a bit about this adorable guy that keeps hanging around? He's, he's your dog, personally? Yeah, he's my dog. He's the, uh, the local wine... Well, he's the wine dog for us. Uh, he hangs around with uh, myself and uh, Dan in the, the paddock, and, and hence the name, like, Cooper... Um, suits the suits of being in part of the wine industry. So, is he a golden retriever? Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a golden retriever. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's just very, very laid back. Cooper. Okay, okay. I'm I'm focused again. I want to get an understanding of what it takes to grow grapevines. We're renowned for our semillon. Um, it could be semillon or semillon, depending on it's kind of which side of the border. We've got um, old semillon that's uh, planted in 1908 here, and we've got 27 acres of 100-plus-year-old vines. It's one of those varieties here that grows exceptionally well. The Hunter is a fairly warm climate, and it's just one of those varieties here that it just gels with the environment. Growing the perfect grapes has got to start from the ground up, which means good soil. And that soil needs to be well-drained enough that roots don't become waterlogged but it also needs to be able to store enough water to provide a sufficient supply over the whole growing season. And different grape varieties even need different soil types. Our Shiraz, our, um, and we've got a little bit of Cabernet, we've got a little bit of Sangiovese. We always look at the, uh, the red podzolic um, clays. So they're the type of soils that to do suit, uh, suit those red varieties, purely because they've got good soil moisture holding capacity, they're calcareous type soils and do hold uh, other micronutrients which actually um, keeps those, uh, the vines in, in such a luscious place. And we do a lot of things that's still old school, so much is by hand, right from the pruning, right through to wire lifting, right through shoot removal, right through to uh, cropping, looking at crops and making sure that we actually get those into a balance with the vines. The pruning at Tyrrells is done around middle of May through to the end of August. And like Andrew said, it's all done by hand. It's equivalent to like a thousand vines an acre and uh, we have to hand prune every one of those, uh, have some sort of, of hand crafting with them. The next phase is that uh, we, we get into like sort of middle of August. Middle of August is when we uh, when we start to see a little bit of bud movement and we start to see the growing cycle start to, to come into play. So what happens uh, from the likes of once we get into September, we start to see different growth patterns. Uh, it can be up to like a four week difference between varieties so your reds and your whites and so that time of year is probably it's one of our most critical times to make sure that we're monitoring our vineyard that's the time of year where we actually see uh, if there's any disease if there's any pests that's when we've actually got to be right actively and ready to control if, if we don't control them at that point in time they will have a big impact on potential uh, crop damage so how are you feeling in those nights before, you know? Like, is there an anxious, really anxious period in the year for you? Absolutely. That's probably the time of year when everything is, it has to be right. It's all pretty challenging and nerve-wracking stuff. And of course, what else do plants need? Water. Nearly 90% of the property is dry grown, so the only water that they get is rain-driven. We, we have the warmth, we get humidity, uh, we, we get a lot of elements that 
kind of go a little bit against viticulture. One of the things that we need to do more so here than any other region is to make sure that we get the right amount of airflow here because the weather conditions here can become quite stagnant. Uh, so there, there's a lot of uh, innovation that actually is, is uh, with the viticulture now that we do have that works best in our environment. You know, I think I can tell the difference between a good and a bad wine, but maybe you can elaborate on what makes the difference between a good and a great wine. To make a great wine, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the, the vine, it's the clone of that uh, that vine, it's a variety that actually suits the uh, that soil type. Also the direction of orientation when it comes to the, the vine row itself. Really? So, yeah, it's because of like the sun, sun penetration. So it all comes back to the plant. You can't make a great wine out of an average plant. No, you, <laughs> you, you can't. Well, you, you can, but uh, it's, there's a lot of manipulation that goes with it. We let the uh, the grape itself tell a story. Um, so what's produced out here is what's what finishes in the bottle. Hmm. So what does end up in the bottle? Kind of seems like there's only one thing left to do now. Taste some wine. One of our core jobs is to educate people to come here. That's another Andrew, Andrew Mercer, and he's the cellar door manager who's going to take us through a bit of taste testing. I've never done like a little dinner party on a podcast here. So, <laughs> so for people like me who I, I enjoy wine, but I definitely don't know a lot. I say I'm at the beginning to middle kind of learning range. Like what am I, yeah, those things that you're looking for in a, like a taste, you know, it's... What you Plum. Said there, oh. <laughs> I don't, we don't like here at Cyril's for everyone to get too bogged down in the expressions or the um, different flavour profiles that you're going to pick up. We talk a lot about the vineyard and where it's from and what goes into making good quality wine. Um, and the fact that you enjoy it is the most important thing in any wine. So you can just sit back there and say either you liked it or you didn't. And that's okay. What we're going to go okay, through. no pressure. Cool. No pressure yeah. at all. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to have a look at two little semions side by side. So to do a comparative or a vertical tasting of the same varietal side by side um, gives us a better idea of the differences between the styles. Okay, so the first one I'm showing you is from a vineyard called the HVD Vineyard. And these are vineyards that were planted way back in 1908. So this is over a 110 year old vine. So this is 2013. So not only you've got old vine, this is a slightly older example of Semillon. So when we're seeing all that natural acidity start to soften, we see the wine become naturally richer. All that richness gives you that more flavor intensity. It smells really good. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to compare that up against our flagship. And this comes from vineyards that just down the bottom of our driveway, just on the other side of the road, is a vineyard known as the Short Flat Vineyard. Um, and the Short Flat, I guess, is one of our most understated vineyards in that we don't have any wines named after the Short Flat, but it actually does produce all the fruit that goes into this famous Vat 1, our famous Vat 47 Chardonnay, which we're also going to try, and a little bit of Vat 9 fruit comes down from down there as well. So this is the 2014 Vat 1. Two different semions from two different vineyards. And the stirring, so the stirring is a thing. It is. Okay. It is. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to cover the full surface area of the glass and we're gonna try and release all those lovely aromatics because the, the, the smell and the aromas of the wine go into a large part of, of what we taste. 
Should you like breathe in as you're drinking it or anything else? That yeah, they say to take that small little uh, suck of air as well, just before it. It's harder to explain than it is to me to actually just do it. Yeah, you, you do it. <laughs> Any cow. excuse, what right? Are you trying? You trying this one? Oh, I'll go for the bat one as well. Yeah. <laughs> Any time to try that, it's a nice experience. So they say to sort of do it like this. So taking that small amount of oxygen in with with the wine. That's great sound effects. <laughs> I needed that. Right, so I stirred the glass, then I suck it in some air with my sip, and wow, delicious. But I was also today years old when I learnt what a spittoon is. So, sorry, I got so distracted. You might have to repeat that. What did you just do? What was that? <laughs> so you spit the wine because you only want to taste it on the front of your, like, mouth. Oh. So you get more of like the fruit flavors, all that sort of stuff. But oh, no, like, not me. I like to drink it. Okay. I drink it as well, but I just like to do that the first time. Oh, okay. I I feel like I did. I ruin it by already like no, swallowing. Not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm gonna do it. Do that too. Oh my god, it's like a little communal spit bucket thing. <laughs> this like got less fancy in like the things you learn. So next one on the menu is Chardonnay. Really unique little vineyard, this in terms of um, its soil profile. So you get this wonderful sandy loam soil, which has got like this talcum powder consistency, which is perfect for white wines. Okay, so the Chardonnay is a lot younger vine. It was planted in 1991, um, but it was planted using cuttings from our HVD Chardonnay vineyard. So we did the HVD Semillon earlier. We also do an HVD Chardonnay and it's believed to be um, the world's oldest producing Chardonnay vineyard. See, it's, uh, this is the whole theme I'm getting today, you know, having a chat with Andrew and Bruce. It's, and I'm, and I'm asking, you know, what if the future moved to making synthetic wines? And it's like, yeah, it could be done, but I think what comes with the taste and the whole experience is that history and the story that comes through with it, it's not just, hey, we made something that some people might like and drink. You know, you were talking earlier about flavour descriptors. It's not really about that. It's about the story for us. You know, we can get up there and talk about why we do so many single vineyard versions of Semillon, Chardonnay and Shiraz. And it's all based around that story and these wonderful old vineyards. So we've got these old vines for a reason. We want to bottle them on their own so that they showcase that wonderful, unique characters that each of these little terroirs offer. What's a terroir? Terroir is what the French talk about, and that just refers to the site of that vineyard and all these characteristics that go into giving us different styles. So it's the uh, geography of the, of the vineyard, it's the orientation, it's the soil profile, and it's the age of the vine, and all these things are going into giving us um, slightly different, unique characters. So Belfort Chardonnay in the left, and then Tyrrell's uh, Vat 47. Okay, this has like woody flavors. Correct. Is that, yay! <laughs> So different to the uh, semillons that you've just had, yeah. Chardonnays get um, maturation in oak barrels. Okay, we've done the whites, and now it's time for some. Okay, so we're going to show you, in your left glass is going to be the Stephen Shiraz. 
This particular property comes from the more, I suppose, southern part of Pecolvin. It is actually the oldest vineyard in New South Wales. It is called the Old Patch, and it was planted in 1867. So this is all the surrounding vineyards around the Old Patch that goes into making Stevens. And this is from 2016. And very much within what makes the Hunter Silas race so unique is that medium-bodied frameworks. Oh, it's amazing. And really quite different to some of the other Shiraz wines I've tried in the past. And this is what Andrew says is important. You've got to keep an open mind and not dismiss an entire variety based on your previous experience. One of the myths that we get when people come visit us here in the Hunter is they say, I don't like Shiraz, it's too heavy. And it's about introducing them to an entirely different style. And that's what we want to open people's minds up to when they come here to the, to the cellar door particularly, is to just get them to try things that are outside of their comfort zone. So if you went ahead and tried I don't know, five, six, seven different Hunter Valley Shiraz and you've come to the consensus that you don't like Hunter Shiraz, then you've given it a good try and then you move on to another region and try their styles of Shiraz before you just dismiss a varietal completely after a couple of bottles. So I don't know about you, but it sounds like the take home message is that we should all be doing a bit more research, which means trying more wine. A bottle of white bottle of red perhaps a bottle of rosé instead thanks for listening to branch out if you like today's episode make sure you leave a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast app next episode we're exploring some of the latest inventions using plants with researchers in sydney and south africa So make sure you hit subscribe to get that episode delivered straight to your podcast app in November. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produced this episode of Branch Out.